Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. In our last podcast, we took a look at the history of the two temples in Jerusalem. The first was constructed by King Solomon around 1000 BC. Then we learned it was destroyed during the Babylonian invasion. The temple was then reconstructed by the Israelites after they returned from captivity around 515 BC. We discussed Herod the Great. (laughs) He's called the Great because of his architectural accomplishments, not because of his winning personality. Herod started to restructure the temple around 19 or 20 BC. And we learn from the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus that the temple wasn't actually completed until long after Herod was dead. In fact, Josephus tells us the temple wasn't completed until 63 AD. Well, what's tragic about that is that's only seven years before it's destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. I want to tell you a little bit about Herod. Herod quite honestly had a problem winning friends and he probably would not be elected as father of the year. He's known for his paranoia and his cruelty, but He's also known for constructing enormous and elaborate structures. How could he afford such structures as Herodian, Masada, Caesarea Maritima, and the Jewish temple? Well, each project was paid for with crushing taxes that he imposed on the Jewish people. We learn this from Josephus, who was alive during the time of King Herod. In fact, he tells us in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, the people of Judea, who at the beginning of his rule were in good economic condition, were humbled to the ground and turned into miserable paupers. He had the leaders killed in order to confiscate their property. The expenses he laid out upon the temple were vastly large, and the riches about it unspeakable. Well, I'm going to share some, I'm not going to call them fun facts because they're actually horrible, so let's call them horrible facts about Herod. He killed two of his children by drowning them at the beautiful Caesarea Maritime, It's right on the Mediterranean Sea, such a picturesque location, but I have to tell you, when we saw the ruins and then we were told the story, it's a bit of a tragic downer to see something so beautiful and then to know that something so terrible happened there. Well, he also killed a third child. And what's even more twisted and bizarre is that his wife, I think it was his second wife, Mary Omne. He preserved in honey for seven years after she died 
and displayed her body in a glass tomb in his castle. Okay, now, yes, that, that is incredibly weird. But what's even more disturbing is that he was the reason why she died. He had her executed. Yeah, I know, you, you, you really can't make this stuff up. Now, Josephus goes on and uh, talks about Herod again, and he says that he undertook a very great work, that is, to build of himself the temple of God. We see a little self-serving there. Make it larger in compass and to raise it to a most magnificent altitude as esteeming it to be the most glorious of all his actions, as it really was. To bring it to perfection and that this would be sufficient for an everlasting memorial of him. And it is an amazing thing that he did. I mean, here we are talking about it 2,000 years later. It's an architectural marvel, but at the same time, it seems to have been a bit self-serving. We know that the temple sits on top of Mount Moriah. And in my previous podcast, we talked about why Mount Moriah is so special and meaningful. And one of the main events that took place there was when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on top of that mountain. But of course, we learn from Josephus that Herod thought that that existing temple site was way too small for what he was envisioning. And that's when he decided to build a plaza around the temple to create the necessary space for all of the people that he was anticipating would come. It's one of those, if we build it, they will come. And we learn that they actually did come in the millions. But in order to build this plaza, he first needed to do some foundational support. I'm going to tell you a little bit about these retaining walls that were built as a box around Mount Moriah. And then the mount was filled in so that then he could have this tremendously large almost twice the size temple of what it was previously. Now, last week, we focused on what the temple looked like. If I had a drone and you were kind of looking at it from the top, I talked to you about the courtyards, of which there were four of them. We talked about the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies. We talked about who could go where. Uh, there's definitely crowd control. Remember, non-Jews, those are the Gentiles, they faced the big do not enter uncertainty of death sign if they went past their Gentile courtyard. You know, perhaps this is the first record of social distancing. They felt Gentiles were definitely unclean, and I'm just wondering, with the advent of all of us eventually getting back to seeing each other, I wonder if we're going to need to invoke some type of mikvah or spiritual cleaning first. Okay, I saw you bathe, now you can come in. I guess we'll see. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the exterior of the temple, the walls, and the gates around Jerusalem. First, let's talk about how they built these huge limestone exterior walls, which at one time may have been 200 feet high. <laughs> Was it the work of angels or aliens? Uh, probably not. 
but it's still pretty cool how they did it. To quarry the limestone for this massive structure, the stonecutter first straightened the face of the stone. This consisted of chiseling the rock in such a way so that he would produce a flat vertical surface. Then the sides of the stone and the surface on the top of the stone. Next, with a pickaxe, are you with me? He would dig narrow channels about four to six inches wide on all sides except the bottom. So I have the left side, the right side, and the top. He's chiseling some narrow channels. In two of these grooves, at right angles, he would insert dry wooden beams. He's going to hammer them tightly into place and then pour water over them. The water caused the wood to swell and the consequent pressure caused the stone to separate from the lower rock layer. Because of the way limestone is formed, it actually would cleave underneath in a pretty straight line. Is this cool or what? This is pre-days of dynamite. Isn't that a clever way to remove a stone? All right, so we have these horizontally layered local limestone used to build the temple. Limestone is very, very prevalent in Israel, but they believe the quarry that was used for the temple construction is a hill about a mile away. And the reason why they think this is they actually found a 50-foot column still attached to the bedrock of this particular limestone mountain. And they're assuming that that's probably where it came from. They didn't take the column. It has a crack in it. And so they just left it behind. But it's of the exact same style of the rest of the temple construction. So they think that's probably the quarry that they used. What's also interesting is this limestone quarry is 125 feet higher than the Temple Mount. So they were able to roll these rocks down the hill. All right, as you can well imagine, special techniques had to be developed to transport these stones. And I actually saw one of these devices. It was, if you can envision a large, wooden roller. So while shaping the stones, the masons would leave a 12 inch long projection on opposite sides of the stone. Think of maybe arms sticking out of each side of the rock. Uh, and those projections would be removed later, but ropes were placed around these projections. And then two short but strong cranes were outfitted with winches, and then they would lift the stones on one side and lower them onto the rollers. And then ox could then pull the stones with the ropes placed around the projections. And according to Josephus, she had a thousand ox for this job. So yeah, you have the force of gravity kind of helping these rocks come down the hill, but you also had the help of rollers because it probably wouldn't have been safe for them to just say, watch out below, 50-ton rock coming your way. I know they didn't have OSHA, but I'm 
still sure that they didn't want to wipe out all of their workers. So this is how we believe they got these huge stones from the limestone quarry down to the temple. All right. Now, how did they get these stones onto the temple? Well, we're told that in many instances, these rocks were actually lowered into place from above. There's 16 foot thick walls on the Temple Mount. And they're basically retaining walls built to retain the high pressure of the fill that was dumped between the previous platform and the new temple wall. And this was Herod's way of enlarging the previous platform to, as I said, about twice the original size. So Herod's engineers solved the construction problem by pouring internal fill simultaneously with the construction of the walls. So the first course of stones was laid in the valley surrounding the previous Temple Mount. Then the area between the old and the new walls is filled up to the level of the top of the course. And then this creates the new work level on top of which from the inside, a second course of stones would be laid. And again, fill added on the inside so that a third course of stones could be laid and so on course after course until the whole of Herod's extension was raised up to the level of the previous temple platform. And again, I've said the walls, 16, 16 and a half feet thick, and the exterior walls, 130 to 200 feet high, made of huge block-shaped stones, weighing on average 10 tons. Now, what's also interesting is no mortar was used. The stones were placed extremely flush to prevent shifting. The base of the stones was wider at the bottom than the top, and each row of stones was three centimeters smaller than the one below it, and this would ensure the wall's stability. The stones were laid in alternating rows, aligned east-west, and above, north, south, and so on. Isn't that amazing? You know, when I was a kid, I played with the Lincoln Logs, but it was nothing like this. Now, the actual buildings on the top of the Temple Mount that I told you about last week, they were built of smaller stones. I mean, everything's relative, but smaller. In fact, uh, stones from these structures were thrown down into the street when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Most of those stones were scavenged for other construction over these thousands of years, but during a recent excavation, they actually found some of these scattered along the western wall and the southwestern corner, and I, I got to see them. And smaller, as in those stones weighed between two and three tons. Josephus tells us that for this project, it took about 10,000 men. Okay, so we've talked about the walls of the temple. Now I want to move on to the various gates around Jerusalem's old city. And for this part of my podcast, please refer to a diagram 
that I have on studentofthebible.com website. You'll see this diagram so you can kind of go along with me as we talk about the various gates around the old city. What exactly are gates? The book of Genesis says, Lot was sitting in the gates of Sodom. You know, there's over 300 Bible verses that mention that word gate. Okay, to modern ears, the description of in the gates sounds weird. But in biblical times, a gate or gates wasn't just a passageway through the defensive walls surrounding the city. It was typically a massive and often complex structure consisting of an outer gate and an inner one providing a second line of defense. And then there would be a space in between, and it was the space in between those two gates, sometimes just a corridor with a recessed guard room, but sometimes really a, a spacious courtyard. And that's what the Bible calls in the gates. And a lot of action took place within that gate area. Based on biblical references and archeological finds, that space served as a combination of a town hall, an ad hoc law court, a community center, marketplace, and a park bench right outside the gates. Well, that's where the poor, the lame, the lepers, that's where they'd be found. Now, ancient cities were often constructed more like fortresses than cities. And you know, that's what you see when you visit Jerusalem for the first time, or at least that's what really struck me was it's very beautiful how there's this amazing wall around the old city. And Jerusalem has done a brilliant um, job of lighting up the walls at night from you have some up lights and then some lights coming down. And so it just looks absolutely spectacular. But in ancient times, they served a purpose. The perimeter of a city would have stone walls with traditionally wooden gates to permit or prevent the entry of people and animals. Okay, well, here's a fun fact. Most of you have heard of Wall Street in New York City. Well, at one time, there actually was a wall covering that exact same area of Wall Street. It was constructed by the Dutch in 1644. And of course, at the time, it was built to protect the citizens of New Amsterdam from wild Indians, wild animals. But I love this. It says it was also built to protect them from the European colonies of Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Haven. I'm from New England, so I think that is very funny. In times of war, enemy forces would often concentrate their attacks on gate openings because, you know, that would typically be the weakest part of the city wall. So gates were strategic and usually built in a way so that they were flanked by or actually maybe even a part of more adjoining defensive chambers or towers. So if a gate was breached, reinforcements could be dropped into the gateway from these rooms and then, you know, basically trap the invaders. Jerusalem's old city has had numerous gates over the thousands of years of their history. 
And in times of peace, the gates were used for judgments and business transactions and leaders would sit at the gates. Presently, there's eight gates into Jerusalem. Again, if you refer to my website, studentofthebible.com, you can take a look at where they are. The prophet Ezekiel predicted a day when the gates of Jerusalem will total 12. Why 12? Can you think of a reason? Well, Ezekiel 48, 31 through 34, says that these gates will represent the 12 tribes of Israel. But over the years, many of the city gates have been destroyed or rebuilt. Most of them rebuilt by Suleiman, the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire, in the 1500s AD. Only seven gates remain in use. And we'll talk about these seven gates. The first gate is the Zion, Z-I-O-N. The Zion Gate is located on the southwest side of the Old City, and it's one of the gates that leads to the Jewish sector, and that's where King David's tomb is, and also where they believe the upper room where Jesus and his disciples had their last supper. From a tourist standpoint, what's also rather interesting, but at the same time tragic, is there's these giant bullet holes that are very, very visible by the naked eye, and it's pitted into the exterior of the Zion Gate, and that's from the 1948 war and the 1967 war. We have the Dung Gate, D-U-N-G. Yes, that's right. Okay, the Dung Gate leads to the Western Wall and the Temple area, but at one time, it was the trash removal gate. I love this. <laughs> and very practical. It's where the residents dumped their garbage into the valley to burn. And most likely, it was due to the direction that the wind would then carry the smell from the garbage and the fires away from the city. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 13, talks about the dung gate. We have the lion's gate, very aptly named, because there's two sets of lions carved on the northeast entrance, and this is the usual exit to get to the garden tomb and to Gethsemane, and it's the traditional spot of where we believe that St. Stephen was stoned. In the book of Acts 7, it talks about where Stephen is the first to be martyred for being a follower of the way, a follower of Jesus. We have Herod's Gate. Herod's Gate is sometimes also called the Flower's Gate. That gate takes us into the Muslim quarter. And according to tradition, Jesus was led to Herod's palace through this gate. The Damascus Gate. Well, the Damascus Gate is aptly named because it was the beginning of the road to Damascus. This is how you would go through to head to Damascus, Syria. And the road to Damascus is where we know from the Bible Paul was traveling when he has 
this life-changing encounter with Jesus and the Damascus Gate now serves as the primary entrance into the Arab sector. Old Jerusalem is broken into four different quarters. You have the Jewish, the Christian, the Muslim, Arab sector, and the Armenian sector. Next, we have the Jaffa Gate, J-A-F-F-A. But Jaffa is also Joppa, J-O-P-P-A. In fact, that's how it's most frequently mentioned in the Bible. This gate is on the west side of the city, and it's the most used gate going into Jerusalem, and it's fortified by David's Tower. It's the starting point for the road to Joppa, J-O-P-P-A, as it's referred in the Bible, and uh, Joppa would be about a three days walk going through that gate. Now, Joppa is mentioned a number of times in the Bible, but one story that comes to mind is when Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh and to warn them of their certain demise if they didn't change their ways. And instead, the Bible tells us that Jonah headed towards Joppa to the port where he picks up his ship and has the ill-fated trip where he ends up in the belly of a large fish. We then have the new gate. Well, aptly named because it was only opened most recently in terms of Israel history in 1887. And this was to allow easier access for Christian pilgrims when they would come from their monasteries to go into the Christian quarter and into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. All right, now we're going to get to the Eastern Gate. According to our Jewish historian Josephus, the Eastern Gate was the most beautiful gate. It was made of brass, and he writes that it, the double doors were so massive, it took 20 men to open and close them. We believe the Eastern Gate is what the Bible sometimes refers to as the beautiful gate. And this is where in Acts chapter 3, verses 2 through 8, we have this amazing story of Peter and John and the lame man who was sitting at the beautiful gate. So as I told you before, uh, typically uh, poor people, lame people, lepers, would try to sit at various gates to get attention and to get help. So this crippled man, he wants money. And initially, he was probably very bummed out because Peter and John said, oh, sorry, dude, we don't have any money. But in fact, they offered him something way better. Use of his legs. Okay, I want to pause for a moment. Have you ever been waiting outside the gate for something? Maybe not literally, but metaphorically speaking. Maybe you felt unworthy or unwelcome somewhere and you think, well, gosh, all my problems are going to be solved if only I can get in, if I can get to the other side, if, if I have that job or 
if I receive that grade or get that car or live in that house or have that boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse. You know, the lame man, he thought that all his problems would be solved with money. And maybe that's because he didn't even dream he could ever ask for use of his legs. We serve an awesome God. You know, God may not give you exactly what you ask for, but he always gives you exactly what you need. You know, that man had never been able to walk before. The Bible tells us that he was born without that ability. But he knew immediately when he got the power of his legs that that came from God. Have you praised God lately? If you do, you're going to feel like jumping for joy, just like that man did when he got use of his legs. Stop waiting outside the gate. Let God in. Okay, now back to the Eastern Gate. This is most likely the gate that on Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered the city from the Mount of Olives, he entered through this gate. It has many names in the Bible, the Golden Gate, the Eastern Gate, the Beautiful Gate, the Mercy Gate. It's the oldest gate in Jerusalem, and it's the only gate that's sealed up, and I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. We stood on the Mount of Olives, and we were able to visually follow the path that Jesus most likely took down into the city and entering into the temple. But when we looked towards the temple in the eastern wall, our guide had to visually point out to us where the eastern gate was because it's stoned shut. It is completely walled over. You can barely see where it was. Now, here's what's so fascinating about the eastern gate. It holds special belief for the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. According to Jewish belief, the Eastern Gate is where the Messiah will re-enter the city on Yom Kippur. Because remember, the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah. Now, for Muslims, they believe the Eastern Gate is where Allah received his final judgment and is the site of future resurrection. Now, as I said, for Christians, the East Gate is important because we believe this is the gate that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so it also makes sense that Jesus exited through this same gate the night he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his arrest. And again, it's most likely the gate that he went through 40 days after he had been resurrected. He has his apostles with him, and he is going up to the Mount of Olives for his ascension into heaven. He would have gone through this eastern gate to head east up to the Mount of Olives. Now, according to Jewish tradition, the Messiah will re-enter Jerusalem from the east. The gate has special holiness because legend has it that Shekinah, or the divine presence, used to appear through this gate and, according to Jewish tradition, will appear again. But in the meantime, the gate must be left untouched. Now, for the Muslims, they call the gate the mercy gate. And according to the Quran, the just 
will pass through this gate on the day of judgment. Okay, now that's some cool history. And it's interesting that this gate is the only one of the eight gates in Jerusalem that's sealed off. It's absolutely impossible for anyone to enter or exit it. Now, the Muslims believe that since the Jews expect their Messiah is going to come through this gate, they wanted to try to prevent any possibility of his return. So the East Gate was walled up by Suleiman the Magnificent in 1530 AD. And then just to make sure that the Messiah couldn't get through, a Muslim cemetery was planted in front of the gate because the thinking was this Jewish Messiah won't set foot in a cemetery and therefore he won't be able to come through the gate. Now, here's some irony. Further east, at the base of the Mount of Olives, is an ancient Jewish cemetery. Uh, oh, and it's huge. It's the oldest Jewish cemetery in the world with graves dating back to the time of King David. There's over 150,000 graves in this cemetery and Jews from all over the world, if they want to be buried there today, it is possible, but it was very, very difficult and extremely expensive, like $100,000. But the Mount of Olives Cemetery is considered a holy place for the Jews because according to their tradition, it's believed that those bodies that are buried there are going to be the first to be resurrected during the end days of Armageddon. So we have Jews buried at the base of the Mount of Olives so they can be resurrected when their Messiah comes. And then right across the Kidron Valley, next to the Eastern Wall and the Eastern Gate, we have Muslim gravestones. And they're there to block the Messiah from coming to the gate. And we have this famous gate completely sealed off by massive stones. Ezekiel, well, he prophesied this, you guys, in 600 BC. Now, remember, I told you that this wasn't sealed off until 1500 AD. Ezekiel prophesies it when the temple had only been around for about 400 years. In 600 BC, he says that that gate would be shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. Ezekiel 44, verses 1 through 3. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And he said to me, this gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and go out by the same way. Wow, my head just exploded. Okay. So, in conclusion, today we learned about ancient temple walls that were six and, 16 and a half feet thick and fortified and massive and maybe 200 feet tall. And we learned about the gates that were often used to keep out wild animals and wild people. But I 
don't think it's an accident that I felt compelled to start my podcast series with this theme. Because honestly, lately, how many of us have built walls or gates to keep people out? How many of us have stood on the outside because we felt unsure if we were welcome in? We need to learn from history that walls can come down and gates can be opened. During times of uncertainty, let's ask ourselves, where do we turn? Do we turn inward towards our fortress? And then conversely, during times of plenty and and bounty, where do we turn? Again, do we turn inward to kind of hold on to what we have, to hoard it just in case sometime there might be a shortage? You know, whatever side of the wall or gate you're on right now, please know we serve an awesome God. You're worthy and you're good enough because you're a beloved child of God, not because of anything you have done or have not done. Now it's all because of what he has done for us. Now I want to encourage you to go spread love this week and maybe open up your gates just a little but make sure you have at least six feet.